0: Well, good morning. Mercy Road, how are we doing? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you for braving the cold. For those of us who are uh, worshiping and joining us online, welcome as well. We're in a series, What I'm Not Doing for Christmas. And I read this crazy study this week. It said 45% of Americans now admit to wishing that they could just skip over Christmas and the Christmas season. I mean, that's really high. They just would rather... Just jump right over it. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why people are marking that box, but so much of it must have something to do with the increased holiday stress, the anxiety, the worries, the pace, and the pressure of the season. So in this Advent season—Advent just means coming or anticipation of Christ's coming— we're slowing down, we're trying to create some Sabbath rest, some margin, and trying to do less— so that we can experience more of what God wants in our lives. So we're asking this kind of a bold question for our culture. What will I not do this Christmas? How could how could I lean more into the purpose of the season and lean away from some of the hectic, commercial craziness of the season? And so we've talked about things like simplicity, pursuit of simplicity, and, and Sabbath rest last week. And today, we are going to talk about worry, worry worry accounts for so much of the health problems that Americans have. Everything from lower back pain, sleeping problems, irritable bowel problems, uh, to just chronic anxiety and a sense of restlessness. You can never turn off those worries, and they just keep you up, and they keep you thinking and wondering. And some of you, you get worried when you come to church and you hear a sermon about worry because you're like, now he's going to bring up topics that I haven't even worried about, but I promise you I'm going to, right? And so we're, we're really going to uh, uh, lean into God. So would you uh, open this message up with me with a little bit of prayer? Because this is a big topic. God, we want to we give you our worries. Jesus, you told us to come to you when we're weary, heavy laden, when life feels heavy when we're concerned about uh, problems that we're going through or problems that we may go through, real or imagined. The worries in our lives are, are heavy, and it seems like this season has a way of amplifying our worries, which is so wrong and ironic, Lord. So we want to trust in you. Help us to replace worry with a great sense of wonder and trust in your ability to save us and to bring us into the center of your will. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, and the application of your word in Jesus name, amen. All right, we're going to Matthew and we're talking about a case study in the Christmas story that a person that's kind of ignored, Joseph, not Joseph from the Old Testament, but Joseph as of Joseph and Mary. So as we read from Matthew one and a little bit of Matthew two, just to refresh our memory or in case you didn't grow up in church, Pay attention to this Joseph character. Try to think about what this Christmas story would have been like from his point of view and his eyes. Because really, he really has a temptation to worry in this text. So here's what I mean by this. We're going to read from Matthew uh, chapter 1. And uh, in case you want to follow along, we're starting at verse 18. Go through 25, and then we'll jump to chapter 2, 13 through 14. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, that means rescuer, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, that means before they consummated the marriage, had sex, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph could have insisted uh, on the Levitical punishment for unfaithfulness in this, in this situation, but he did not want Mary to experience the harshness of the law. From his point of view, this looks like she cheated on him. And so he is trying to show her mercy. He was going to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel, a messenger of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, this is important because Jesus, the Messiah, is to come from the Davidic line. And so Joseph is an ancestor of David, King David himself. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is a big ask, Mercy Road, because in the ancient world, a Jewish father had exclusive rights to name their child, and it was kind of an authority symbol saying, like, I'm in charge of this child. I'm going to direct them. I have the managerial authority over this child. And so you're asking me? Joseph must have been thinking to to engage in this marriage anyways, even though this looks really problematic, and you're not even going to let me name the child, okay? But then the explanation, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew two, thirteen through fourteen now we're fast forwarding. Jesus has been born and several months to years later when they had gone an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream get up he said take the child and his mother and escape to egypt stay there until i tell you for herod is going to search for the child to kill him so he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for egypt this is god's word so let me ask you a question are you worried about your reputation? Have you ever struggled with this? There's lots of names for it, people pleasing, fear of men or man or women, uh, fear of you know, how many likes you're gonna get on social media or lack of likes, afraid that you use the wrong filter on Instagram, you know, stuff like that. Do you have an inordinate sense of worry and fear about your reputation? It's very likely at some point in your life you're going to be profoundly misunderstood and people will perceive that you've done something that you didn't or you did something for a motivation that actually wasn't there. It's gonna look worse than it is at some point in your life. And here's the bad news, you can't avoid that. And in our day and age with with technology being instant, a reputation that was built over 30 years can be destroyed in 30 seconds, can it? I want us to think about what Joseph must have felt when this happened to him. He's just a nice Jewish kid who finds a nice Jewish gal to marry and they're engaged and they live in an honor-shame culture, which means there are certain behaviors you just don't do. And if you do, you bring shame upon not just you, but the whole tribe, the whole group. It changes your life forever. Reputation in an honor-shame culture matters. And all of a sudden he's being asked to believe something that seems just unbelievable. And it really would have changed him. I mean, imagine he's a carpenter, right? And so imagine he's at work and he's building a table and he's got some other guys who work for, you know, the carpenter place that he works at. And they're just kind of whittling things and putting a leg on a table. And and the guy says, um, hey, Joe, so what's really the deal? I mean, you and Mary, before, before you got engaged, you guys... Couldn't wait, right? And he's quiet. And the lathe goes a little faster. He's kind of angry. No, we we were virgins when we were married. Oh, okay. So Joe, so you're saying Mary had kind of a self-control issue there. I'm I'm not saying. I'm just saying, you know, you got other kids too. And, you know, Jesus, your eldest, doesn't kind of look like the other kids. And I'm just wondering... The lathe goes a little longer. This would have cost him his reputation, because really, what is Joseph's comeback? Well, actually, Frank, what was conceived of Mary is of the Holy Spirit of God, and I'm a, kind of the stand-in, non-biological father of the Messiah that all of human history has been waiting for, the Son of God, third person of the Trinity, and so it's kind of a, explainable. Holy Spirit impregnated. Right, Joe. Right. I've told this story before, but when I was living in Los Angeles, uh, my wife and I were apartment managers for 22 units. Half of the units were usually filled with uh, Korean students, graduate students, and I um, was welcoming a batch of new Korean families, and I practiced my Korean to welcome them. And I was just wanted to nail that greeting. They all came in the center of our little... Um, Melrose Place-looking apartment complex with a uh, 1970s-looking swimming pool and a little deck there. And i they're bringing their kimchi and all their their delicacies. And, and I was really young and I actually had hair and a baby face, believe that or not. And um, so that's a problem in an honor-shame culture to be that young and in authority. And I just wanted to impress them. So I had fondue out and I'm practicing my Korean as they're coming and opening the gate and putting their food down. And then I lit my arm on fire with the the fuel of the fondue stuff. I was, it wasn't lighting, so I just kept pouring it in and it was trickling down. And all of a sudden I'm screaming and I wasn't quite as spiritually mature back then. So I think I might've said some non-Korean words that uh, are, are considered in general improper for a seminary student. And I lost an eyebrow, which makes you look half surprised. I was able to stick my arm in the pool to extinguish it, but then the pool deck started on fire because the canister of fuel was still there. And so I stabbed it with the fondue thing and I throw it into the pool. And now the pool water is on fire momentarily. And let's just say in an honor-shame culture, when you mess up that bad, they didn't quite look at me the same way anymore. Uh, I, I struggled to have a sense of respectability and authority. Joseph, had a proverbial moment where he lit his arm on fire circumstantially in an honor shame culture and people would never look at him the same ever ever my arm hair grew back my left eyebrow brow grew back his reputation would never grow back it very likely cost him income promotion opportunities and social standing i mean think about this and that's kind of how it works when you Welcome Jesus into the center of your life. Now, we don't live in an age or a, a place, rather, where there's extreme persecution of followers of Jesus as of yet. But last week, I read a story about an African nation where a group of women, primarily women, were pulled off of a bus as they were traveling. And at gunpoint, Islamic fundamentalists, terrorists, forced everyone in the bus to verbally... Uh, rescind any faith in Christ and and commit to the, the Muslim faith. These women, six of them, wouldn't do that, and so they were immediately executed. And that should sober us, especially in a conversation about persecution over a mere reputation. It's not just social standing that a lot of Christians in our planet Earth are experiencing today. Many Christians are gathering in a group about this size in countries where they're looking at the door and they're wondering what happens if before the sermon ends somebody comes in and now I'm in prison and I won't get to see my family again. And yet, there is a kind of social standing persecution. When you put Jesus in the center of your life, you're going to be misunderstood because you're giving up authority. Just like Joseph gave up the authority to name Jesus, it's like the angel saying, the way you're going to relate to Jesus, Joseph, he's going to kind of tell you how reality works. You're not going to tell him how reality works. And that's hard. It's hard for us in our culture. And people don't understand that. Why are you doing that? Why do you give such a large percentage of your income to all these causes and to the church. That's so weird. Why do you go to church? Get, I mean, Sunday, funday. why aren't you at brunch? You know, why do you believe this about that issue? Or what? Doesn't that seem archaic? Why in the world won't you do this activity? Why do you think that's sinful and you won't do it? You're going to be misunderstood and persecuted from a position of social standing. And like Joseph, when we embrace Christ, our reputation will be hurt to some degree, some more than others. But it didn't just end there for Joseph. That wasn't it, because later in his story, in the toddler years, this crazy dictator of a king named Herod is approached by three magi. They're the astrophysicists of the ancient world. They study the natural world carefully, and ironically, it was their attention to detail in the natural world that would lead them to the king of that world, and they approach... King Herod, and they say, hey, we hear the prophecies of old about this rescuer, this king that's going to be born. It's all coming together, and we're seeing this in the stars, and we wonder if you could point us to this new king, and King Herod, one of the worst dictators in the ancient world, is saying, what now? A king? I'm the king. And very slyly, he says, oh, um, here's kind of some intel on where he might be. Why don't you go find him, and when you do, report back to me, because I, too, want to worship this king. He's a threatened, evil dictator that actually, ironically, in God's sovereignty, points these people to find Jesus. And they are tipped off in a dream about Herod's real character. And so they don't report back. And in his anger, Herod orders the execution of any male child in the general age range of this would-be Messiah. I mean, what incredible evil human beings are capable of when we are threatened by Christ instead of submitted to Christ. And so Joseph not only has his reputation pretty much destroyed in the ancient world, completely misunderstood, now he's woken up in the middle of the night. Now you parents, we have a lot of kids in this church, some of you really get this, you're woken up with strange demands in the middle of the night on a regular basis. I'm pretty sure you've never had an angel say, get up, pack your stuff, pack your wife and your kid, get out of here. There's a dictator coming for you. Oh, okay, where are we going, angel? You're going to go to a safe refuge called Egypt. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, Joseph might have thought, like, I, I didn't pay that much attention in Sunday school. But I remember the story of our people. Egypt wasn't, like, the friendly, happy place for the Jewish people. That was kind of the place where we were persecuted and put in slavery for 400 years. We spent a lot of effort and God miracle stuff trying to get away from that place. You want me to go where? It's the most expensive place in the ancient world. It's super hostile to the Jewish people. And I have to pack my bags and and leave for Egypt? Sometimes when you put Christ in the center of your, your life, you will be asked to do things that make no sense to you, that scare You beyond your ability to articulate your fears and worry would have been such an understatement of a temptation for Joseph. I wonder if I'll ever live down this impregnated by the Holy Spirit bit because that doesn't seem to make sense. There's no category for that. I wonder if people will stop whispering about my kid and about me. And now I wonder, how am I going to survive? How am I going to protect my little family with a hit on our head from the most powerful person in our little corner of the world who will stop at nothing to execute his plans. And how can I trust this God who seems to have a history of just pulling me drastically out of my comfort zone and now I have to go to Egypt? (sighs) Having Jesus in Joseph's life didn't just hurt his social standing, It endangered his very life, and it may endanger yours someday, and it may endanger mine. Joseph is essentially forced into becoming a refugee in an expensive and unwelcoming country, and he just has that moment of, do I trust or I don't trust? Those are the two options. And we read the Christmas story, and it's familiar, and it's like, yeah, of course, he got up and he went to Egypt. But what if he wouldn't have? I mean, some of us are really practical by our wiring. And, and be honest, like some of us, our personality would have been like, slow it down, angel. Like in the middle of the night, come on. How are we going to pay for this? Could you lay out an excel spreadsheet like a proposal like come on like this seems a little irresponsible we don't just leave and herod's always going off about stuff i mean have you seen his twitter account he gets really angry like he'll, he'll cool off right but he chooses to obey even when he can't see five yards in front of him even when the fears hurt worse than the potential actuality of the threat have you ever been there when you're so worried about something and if you really could be clinical about it and step back, you would measure your pain scale and you'd be like, I think worrying about this hurts even more than if the thing actually happens. Worry can just be devastating. And I imagine it must have been for Joseph. So what do we do? How do we avoid living in the world we live in and worrying about stuff. Because some of us, if we're really honest with our own heart, we spend an inordinate amount of time worrying. We worry about our nation in a very politically polarized, divided age. We worry about our finances. Will there be enough? And Christmas brings this out, right? I really want to make it magical for my kids or my spouse, or I want these certain experiences. And I don't know how... I can keep doing this. I can't just put it on the credit card. How will I pay for this? What about that student loan debt? You worry about your health, right? Some of you need to just stop with the WebMD because you, you find a little symptom, and then you go down a deep rabbit hole, and you've self-diagnosed that you have stage four cancer of the earlobe or whatever, and now you don't know what to do. And then for others of us, that diagnosis is real, not the earlobe one, but the, whatever it is. I was at a Christmas party last night, and I was talking to a Uh, a guy about my age, and it was just a real light conversation because it's a Christmas party, and all of a sudden, it just turned really quick, and he, he shared that his brother died of pancreatic cancer last year. This is the first Christmas without his brother. His brother left behind kids and a wife, and I asked, how are the kids doing? And you could see the look on his face. It was worry. It's like he just stop for a minute and you could almost just read the worries. I wonder how the kids will make it. I wonder how they're gonna do without dad at that sporting event. I wonder what, I wonder, I wonder how she's gonna do. I wonder about the finances. I wonder. I worry, I worry, I worry about this, I worry about this. And we encouraged each other and course, as Christians, we have this incredible hope that should kill worry, this eternal perspective that no matter what manner of ill happens to us in this life, no matter if we're, we're marched off of a bus and forced to say yes or no to Jesus, and if we answer wrong, we're executed, or we live with just the the death by a thousand paper cuts of worry in our culture, no matter what happens in the worst case scenario, we have eternity in the presence of God where every sorrow will be atoned for and healed. And it'll all seem like one night in a bad hotel, as Mother Teresa famously put it. All the evil, all the suffering of our age, all the things we can and should or are worried about in comparison to eternity. When we're in God's presence, Mother Teresa said, all of it will seem like one inconvenient bad night in a hotel. And yet, many of you have heard that quote and you've certainly heard the concept and yet you're still worrying and I still worry. And so how do we beat this? I think Joseph gives us the blueprints for it. We said in week one, we wanna replace worry with wonder, a sense of wonder. So what did that look like for Joseph? He was worried about his safety, his health, his finances, the health of his family. But here's what I think happened. I think Joseph trusted in God's sovereignty, in his science, in God's supplies and signs. They all begin with an S, because I'm a preacher. We can't help it. It's like a medical condition. So let's talk about that. God's sovereignty, that means that even though it hurts your brain to think about this, two things are true at the same time. Every action that you and I execute, I want to lift my right arm. I want to say this to that person. I want to pay my taxes or cheat on my taxes. I want to be faithful to my spouse or not faithful to my spouse. I want to be encouraging and uplifting in this next comment or tear down and be selfish and destructive. I want to take care of my body or not take care of my body. All the accumulative choices in our life, we are responsible for. You are 100% responsible, not for all the outcomes, but for the things that you do of your own free will. You're not a puppet. God's not just doing the strings. So you really have responsibility. You are a free will agent, and so am I. And it matters what we say, what we do, what we give, where we go, the rhythms we embrace or reject, the beliefs we hold dear or walk away from. It all matters 100%, and at the very same time, God is 100% sovereign over all of creation. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. To me, I wanna say it's probably 60-40 or 70-30 or 20-80, and maybe that percentage moves around a lot depending on any given moment. But the scriptures and the best theologians all tell us they're 100% true. God is guiding this. He holds the world in the palm of his hand. He is able to take the raw material of human volition, human free will and choices, and weave it all together towards a redemptive end. He's prepared good works and missions for you to step into in advance of your own birth that you get to step into or not. And he'll work with whatever you do for your good if you want him to. And so this theological term is called sovereignty. God is sovereign, like a king is called a sovereign. He has authority over all of the universe and you see it and Joseph must have, observed this to some extent, certainly as he reflected back on the events that surround Christmas. Joseph surely must have seen how God was able to deliver Jesus, literally deliver Jesus, despite all the hardship, despite what it would cost Joseph and Mary, despite a dictator trying to kill this child, and how God was able to weave it all together. And it's like, Herod is fully responsible for his murderous jealousy and his threat to this little family and God's rescue mission. That's not God pulling puppet strings. That's Herod's evil tendencies and selfishness. And yet God is able like a master chess player to say, and now I'm gonna move them over to Egypt. And now that's gonna fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter seven, written hundreds and hundreds of years ago that would forewarn my son, my rescuer, he's gonna come out of Egypt. And that has a nice little artistic touch that points back to God's constant saving activity, pulling us out of all the Egypts in our life and bringing us out to a promised and better land. How artistic, how sovereignly artistic is God? And when you step back and you look at that, you're like, wow, God, that increases my trust in your ability to save and do things in my life. And now I'm not as afraid of that cancer diagnosis. You're going to weave it all together, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But that's just the sovereignty. Let's talk about the science. We alluded to it. Magi, these three wise men, they're following a star. They're the astrophysicists of the ancient world, and it's their natural proclivity to the, the details of their world that lead them to the righteous, true king of their world. Isn't that interesting? The more you study truth, observable fact, the more it will actually in the end lead you to the truth. There's a misconception in our world right now that all the great thinkers and the scientists of our day, certainly are atheists, that is not the case. Many, maybe even half of the very best scientific minds of our age are theists. It may even be a majority now. Even the science of that age was leading people to Christ and accomplishing God's will. So you have the sovereignty, you have the science, and now you have the supplies. The biggest anxiety and worry that Joseph must have had, apart from physical safety, when the angel shook him awake and said, pack your bags, was probably how to carry all of Mary's luggage, right? No, no. Actually, in our marriage, I pack more than my wife, so there goes that gender theory. The biggest worry is how are you going to pay for all this? How do you travel? Remember that part in the Christmas story where three precious gifts are given by the Magi to this would-be king? These gifts are estimated at well over the lifetime net worth that Joseph would have made as a carpenter. Expensive, expensive gifts fit for a king. Now, when Joseph probably received those on Jesus' behalf— He must have been thinking, like, man, wow, thanks, God. I guess I'm going to buy a lake home on Galilee. This is great, you know? (laughs) You know, like, those guys are going to whisper about me, but I'm going to be driving a much better donkey than them, right? Put a Mercedes on the back of that. But then maybe something kind of tempered that and said, I don't know. Maybe God's got something in mind for these resources other than just my consumption. Maybe the assumption that it's all for my consumption is a wrong assumption. Maybe God wants to use this for a strategic purpose to advance his kingdom. And so the angel wakes him up and he's like, what do I do? Egypt is expensive. It's day. Wait a second. Mary, you're going to have to go without one more suitcase because we have to bring the three gifts. That and that alone probably financed and kept his family afloat in the Egypt years. God has a way of making us stand back and wonder at his ability to be sovereign over every scenario in our life when we surrender it to him. God uses science, and he even supplies the mission. And oftentimes there's a gap where we don't know where the supplies are coming from, and we don't even know what they're for when they're given in advance, and yet Again and again, his purposes are moved forward and we should stand in wonder at this. There are signs throughout this story. You know, miracles in the gospel accounts when Jesus heals people. Have you ever wondered, why didn't he just heal everybody? I mean, this is God in the flesh. Why didn't he just do kind of like a, like a foot stomping, you know, like when Thor like lands in the Marvel movies and he can like electrocute a bunch of people at the same time, Can't, couldn't Jesus just like stomp his foot and like everyone's healed at once? Why wouldn't he do that? And why does it seem that God sometimes heals people today, but sometimes, you know, people aren't healed? Have you ever noticed in the New Testament, they're called signs and wonders? It's a a phrase that's always grouped together around the miracles of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, you know what a sign is? Some of you don't really regard them, right? I see you roll through those stop signs. My dad was a cop, so when I was told how to drive, You have to have the vehicle completely lurch back at the stop sign. Otherwise, you're out of order, right? A sign tells you what to do and what's coming up. And so the miracles that God does in the Christmas story are meant to point us to realities that are in store for us or that are relevant for us. And you see this throughout what God is up to, not just in the text, in the scripture, but in your own life. Joseph must have looked at all this stuff and said, wow, the symbolism. The power of God that points to all these things, the ability to take me to Egypt and fulfill Isaiah 7, these signs, how can he do it all? How can he supply it all? He's a master at it. What I'm getting at is something I've shared before, but we need to hear I need to hear it all the time. But here's a simple application. You want to stop worrying? You want to avoid that second ulcer? Do you want to sleep at night? Change one little word in this phrase. Instead of saying, I'm worried about, Say, I wonder about. And when you say that, remind yourself that th- this use of the word wonder is a specific type of wonder. Not just dumb curiosity, holy curiosity. It's the kind of wonder that, you know, when you pay that big uh, price to go to a concert of a, of a master. Musician, someone who you just know you're going to the concert because they're so good at their craft. And as you drive there, I wonder what they're gonna do. I wonder how. I know they're gonna just blow me away because they're so talented. It's so good. It's gonna be great. They're so good. That's the type of wonder. What would that do to your life right now? Think just if you just indulge me. What is the thing that stresses you out right now? What's the worry on your mind? Is it health? Is it finances? Is it A prodigal child? Is it feeling like you'll never find the love of your life? Is it your your job or insecurity in the economy or larger politics? Or maybe you're a skeptic or a seeker and you just worry, will I ever like have a worldview here? I'm just not sure what to believe. What are you worried about? Now that you have that front of mind, instead of doing the thing that you've done millions of times saying, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about about that. Just say, I wonder about this. As in, I wonder how the God of the universe, who's never short on ability, skill, resources, supplies, symbolism, power, I wonder how he's going to resolve. I wonder how he's going to use even this evil decision by a Herod in my life. This incredible inconvenience, this trial where I have no idea how we're gonna pay for this. I wonder how God will use all this raw material that terrifies me and bring glory to his name and bring flourishing to planet earth and bring eternal glory out of this. I wonder how you're gonna do that, God. And I wonder if there's a way I could be cooperating more and resisting less in what he wants to do. I wonder if there's anything in me that that is really just being led around by the nose, by fear, doubt, selfishness. God, I wonder if there's anything in me that offends you. God, I wonder how costly it will be if I stay in bed and I don't get up and pack the bags and trust you into an unknown Egypt with my wife and son. I wonder What is hanging in the balance if I don't take Mary as my wife and live with the rumors and the whispers? And all this wondering, if you do it right, if I do it right, will draw us to worship. Worship, we'll start to worship the king, the sovereign king who is capable of guiding your life and mine, redeeming any scenario. And as we practice this, something will look different about our life. People who get to know us well will note the absence of one thing among others. She's not worried. He's not afraid. Oh, it's not that he doesn't feel fear. I'm, I'm sh- certain he sometimes feels fear. Sometimes he feels anxious or ha- has concerns. He's not just checked out or naive, But but he's, it's like he's, it's like she's rooted and grounded in something. And the, the look on their face changes. And it's not the look I recognize. It's not the worried look. It's a, it's a look of like holy curiosity about what the God of the universe will do. It's a look of reminiscing Not on sentimental Christmas past, but on the ways that the God of the universe has saved and will save and will continue to save and is saving now. It's a rock-solid trust. It's worship that is driven from wonder. This Christmas, may you and may I replace worry with wonder. Let's pray. God, this is uh, not easy to do, and we need your help to do it. You're the giver of every good gift and we pray for a specific gift in each one of our lives this Christmas and it's the gift of wonder. We stand in amazement and uh, in wonder at what you have accomplished. You toppled the demonic stranglehold of the human race. You resolve the hostage scenario of our entire human race through a baby two young Jewish parents who had many things to worry about but instead they stood in wonder and worship help us to learn from Joseph and Mary help us to not care about what people think, about what people say, not prize our reputation but prize our integrity prize our ability to love and trust you, to follow you help us to not fear what everyone around us fears health concerns and financial insecurities and global problems and the bad things we see on the news and the things that could happen help us not to cling to security this season not to engage in worried chronic anxiety but instead just stand in awe of your great care for us how much you love us how you've forgiven us and how you never leave us thank you for being emmanuel god with us in jesus name